Well, good morning, Mosaic. Well, hey, uh, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, celebrating seven years as a church, that's really cool. I didn't realize that till like yesterday. I was like, Kurt, I think it's 70 year anniversary of Mosaic tomorrow. Um, it just snuck up on us, but it's a, it's a really cool thing. You know, we've, we've, we've been in some places and seen a lot of really cool things the past seven years, and it's a privilege to be part of this community. And uh, if we haven't never met before, my name is Bill, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, well, Kurt's been hogging all the fun the last two and a half months, and I haven't been able to preach, but he finally said it was okay for me to start preaching again, which I thought was nice of him. So I'm going to take the lead on uh, this series that, uh, that we're stepping into today that's called Ransom, right? A little bit dramatic, is it not? Sounds like the title of a Liam Neeson movie. <laughs> Taken for Ransom. You've taken my daughter for the fourth time. She's being a little irresponsible. You can have her. <laughs> but ransom. And for me, it's, it, it, I, I've been plagued by uh, questions my whole life. I, I was the why kid. Any parents in the room have why kids? Why? Because. Why, mom? Because. Why, mom? Just stop talking. Right, that was me growing up. I was the why kid. I always had those things that I never understood about life, that I never understood about the universe. I can remember being a really young kid, and I had this piece of paper, and I ripped it in half. And then I took that half of a piece of paper, and I ripped that in half. And then I took that piece of paper, and I ripped it in half, ripped it in half, ripped it in half. And so I had this little tiny, tiny little piece of paper, and my little fingers couldn't rip it in half anymore. But I knew even at a young age that piece of paper could get ripped in half again. And then even in my little imagination, I was like, and then that piece of paper can get ripped in half, and then that one ripped in half, and then that one ripped in half. And I thought about it, and I was like, this piece of paper can always be ripped in half, and there'll still be something there. And as a young kid, like, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. And so then that night, I, uh, my mom was putting me to bed, and I was like, describing all this to my mom, and she was just like, oh. I know that look as a parent now. I didn't understand it at the time, but it's like, I just want to go downstairs and watch TV and relax, and you're keeping me up with all your questions, um, but that was me, and I remember even as a young kid, I grew up in the Catholic Church, seeing images of Jesus on the cross, I remember just being captivated by this question, well, why did Jesus had to die? Why was it set up that way? And I remember asking my mom one night, probably after we had been to church that morning, and I said, why did Jesus have to die, Mom? And she said, to forgive our sins. Well, why? So that we could go to heaven someday. Yeah, but why? Oh. <laughs> I know that tension now as a parent, right? You're like, you want to speak truth and be with them, but you want to relax and have a glass of wine. Um, but I remember asking, well, why did he have to die, though? Like, couldn't, couldn't God have just chosen to forgive us? Why death? Uh, and I remember she said, it's just the way that it is. And I said, okay, mom, sounds good. Good night. It's just the way that it is. And I think sometimes this faith journey, we, uh, we end up with these questions, and the answer is sometimes it's just the way that it is. Uh, but this question, why did Jesus have to die, it, it stuck with me for a long time. Uh, it began this journey of kind of exploration of what is actually going on here? Is there more to this story happening? 
And so what we want to do over the next four weeks is step into that tension, step into that question, why did Jesus have to die? Why was, the path, why was that the way that God set things up? Why was that the path that Jesus had to go down? Um, and it's going to be a little bit more of a theological series. Uh, it's going to be one of those things that is going to be challenging for some of us. It's going to be life-giving for some of us. Because it's one of those things when you begin to talk about the whys of why did Jesus have to die, we become very attached to those whys and to those hows. And so I want this to be an opportunity for us to explore, for us to navigate through the scriptures together uh, and really begin to answer that question of why. Uh, I love what C.S. Lewis has to say. Uh, I didn't put it in my notes, but I put it up here on the screen. It says, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. Right? Because there's, there's a lot of theories out there of the why or the how, but it's important for us to understand that, uh, that we're entering into this stream of theological thought that people have been trying to figure out for thousands of years the why, the how. Uh, and there's a lot of different opinions and thoughts out there, but it's important for us to understand there is a bunch of different thoughts and ideas, and at the start it's saying, we all agree on, it does work. Right? It goes back to that simple truth that my mom spoke into me as a young child. It's just the way that it is. But as I kind of journeyed this journey, I, I began to see that there's, there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of mystery to the cross. And there's a lot of things that I was able to learn and uh, a lot that I'm excited to share with you today. So why do we choose a series title called Ransom? Okay, the reason why we chose that series title is because really Jesus only addresses the why he had to die one time. He really only says why one time. And that's found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 27 and 28. It says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be last, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, give his life as a ransom. Right, again, that seems like a fairly dramatic word, ransom. And so I remember uh, I was thinking, I wonder what that word really means. Because the Bible wasn't written in English, New Testament was written in Greek. So I wonder what the Greek word uh, is for ransom. So I have Google, Googled it. Here we go. Greek word for ransom is lutron. And it literally means, literally, the ransom price. Garrett, you laughed, right? Because the official definition of literally now is not literally as well, if you look it up in the definition. But anyways, literally, the ransom price or the money paid to free a slave. Which even when you begin to think about that, it opens up in spiderwebs a whole bunch more questions in your mind. Because then you're like, well, like, why was the ransom price for our freedom blood? Right? And then was this ransom paid to someone? Right? That's the thing about theology. And when you begin to get answers to some questions, it just kind of spiderwebs into a bunch of other questions. And so we're going to step into that tension. We're going to step into the questions uh, today. And if you've ever asked yourself this question, why did Jesus have to die? Why was it set up that way? Uh, you're not alone. You're in a very 
good place because the disciples of Jesus asked those questions many times as well. I'm going to point out four different times in the scriptures that the disciples were either confused or they asked questions about why Jesus had to die. First one is found in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Could you imagine if Jesus called you Satan? (laughs) You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Woof. All right. Next one, Mark chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Like, what is he talking about? And then later on in the chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it says, They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were too afraid to ask him about it. Probably because he would have called him Satan again if they asked him about it. All right? Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone this. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Right? So the disciples find themselves in this place of utter confusion. Right? You are the Messiah, but why do you have to die? Right? In their mind, that made no sense. Right? When we, in our context of being in the year 2018, when we hear that word Messiah especially in our context in church on a Sunday morning, our brain immediately goes to death, goes to the cross, goes to forgiveness, goes to sin. It goes to all these word associations with the word Messiah. But the, the disciples, their brains went some, somewhere else entirely different. Their brains went to an entirely different place. To them, the idea of a, a death on a cross and a Messiah, those two things are t- entirely mu- mutually exclusive from each other. There's no way that those two ideas can overlap. And in order for us to fully understand why the disciples are in that place and why they think this way, we have to know a lot of Old Testament history. And so what I'm going to try to do is give you a super brief history lesson. So the history buffs out there, you're going to get excited. For the non-history people, I'm sorry, but we're going there. Right, Because I want us to get ourselves, the goal of this is for us to get ourselves in the place of Jesus' disciples. Right, To get ourselves in that place of why did Jesus have to die? Why are we sitting in this tension right now? And so what we have to do is we have to go way back, the beginning of the story. Israelites, they're in slavery in Egypt. 
God delivers them through Moses. They roam through a desert for 40 years. They enter a land called Israel, and they take over the land. They take over the land. They say, God, we want a king. God says, no, you can't have a king. They say, no, God, for real, we want a king. So God says, fine, you can have a king. So then they elect this man, Saul, to become king of Israel. Saul is a man who lives by the sword. He dies by the sword. He eventually dies in battle at the end of his life. And then David takes over. King David takes over from Saul. And so when King David took over from Saul, God spoke a prophecy to David. Hey, I didn't have a whiteboard. If you know me, you know I love a whiteboard. So I had to do it at home and take a picture of it because we're mobile now. We don't have a mobile whiteboard because we threw it away. I like to throw things away. Everyone gets mad at me. I was like, let's throw it away. And now I regret it. So this is my whiteboard. If you can't see it, uh, too bad. You can sit closer next week. Okay? <laughs> so David takes over from Saul. And when David was king, David was not a perfect king. David was a good king, but he wasn't perfect. And when David was king, a prophet came to David to give him a prophecy from God. And this is the prophecy that God gives to David. And it's going to get us in the mindset of why the disciples uh, are confused about Jesus being the Messiah and dying. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 10. It says, The Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is God speaking to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Forever. And so that prophecy that God spoke to David, some of that was fulfilled, if we can go back to the slide, some of that is fulfilled in Solomon, his son. Solomon ends up building this big giant temple. Uh, and so some of it was filled in Solomon, but when we get to that language of this kingdom will last forever, right? This throne will be forever. Uh, this is what the disciples are thinking of. Right, Because this is this prophecy about this messianic king that's going to come someday and that is going to reign forever as king. Because what we find is that Solomon wasn't the best king at the end of his life. He enforces a ton of taxes, a ton of slavery, and when he dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam is just as bad, if not worse, enforces more taxes, more slavery. What happens is one of the officials, Solomon's official, says this isn't cool and he uh, creates a rebellion and splits the nation into two. Splits the nation into two, and we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom maintains the name Israel. Southern kingdom is called Judah. So this northern kingdom lasts not as long as the southern kingdom. This northern kingdom has about 20 kings. It lasts for only about 200 years. And then in the year, I know it's up here. Click next slide. 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came down and took them over and transported them all off into captivity. And then about another 150 years passes in the southern kingdom and 586 BC is taken over by the Babylonian Empire and they go into captivity. So you have to understand, God has freed his people from Egypt, from slavery. They're brought into this land 
and they think they're going to live there forever. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. It's done. 586 BC, the northern kingdom is out, the southern kingdom is out, and they're left in this place of, what are we going to do? Like, God made these promises to us, and now all of a sudden, we've been taken over by these other nations. And what we find throughout the scriptures that God did not leave them alone is that God gave them all these prophets. Check out my prophets. Not bad, right? I am a good artist. That's all I got to say. So all throughout these timelines, these different prophets would speak to the kings of the northern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom, and they would have these messages for them. And typically, the prophetic message would be this right here, this curve. It'd be like, look, we were here, and now we're going down, and we're going to end up in captivity, and it's going to be terrible. So if you don't change your ways, if you don't change the, the ways that you're running the country, we're going to end up in captivity. This is going to happen, and then God is going to deliver us. God is going to restore us. And even sometimes they would, they would look into the distant, distant, distant future about an ultimate restoration. I love what the prophet Amos, I love what he says when he is speaking to the king of northern Israel, is this is what he says to him. He says, basically, look, we're going to get captive uh, by the Assyrian Empire, but then God's not going to leave us alone. This is what's going to happen in the end. And that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations will bear my name, declares the Lord. Who will do these things? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. Right? So this is the place that the disciples find themselves in. They know the history. They know where they've been. They know how the nation has turned its back on God and gone into captivity because of it. And then there's this promise that God is going to bring them back. God is going to restore it. And God is going to plant Israel in their own land, never to be uprooted again from the land that he has given them. And so how is this going to happen, right? If we know a lot of the other prophecies about this is this messianic king is going to come in and fulfill all these things and make them happen. And so when the disciples are telling Jesus, like, you are the Messiah, they're saying, you're going to be this king, right? You're the son of David, you're, you're, gonna, you're this messianic king that's going to come in, and you're actually you're, you're going to reclaim Israel. Israel's going to be a nation again. Because after all this happens, Israel's always held over by other empires. After this, the Greek empire comes in and, and, and has power over them. After that, the Roman empire has power over them. So they're in a place where all these powers have been over them. And they're like, what the heck? It's been a thousand years since, since Solomon, a thousand years since we were a united nation with some semblance of peace. And so, Jesus, you are our hope to restore that. You are our hope to restore Israel. You are our hope to bring about this change again and to be our king again. 
right? So it's important for us to understand what the disciples wanted out of a Messiah was four things. They wanted a military man. They wanted Israel to be an independent nation. They wanted a king who was a descendant of David to rule on a throne. And they wanted the kingdom of Israel to expand over the whole earth. Right? They wanted David because all they could see was right in front of them. All they could see was what they longed for more than anything else was to them, freedom was deliverance from Rome. Freedom was, was this oppressive nation that was over them that they could be freed from. But what the disciples didn't realize was there was a power greater than Rome that Jesus came to free them from. That there was, a, there was something even greater than Rome that was actually controlling Rome and controlling things underneath the surface. And Jesus came to deal with that. And so we find ourselves in this place of, okay, the disciples, they got some things wrong about Jesus. They misinterpreted who he was and what he came to do. And Jesus takes them on a gentle journey. Right? After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, we read in the book of Acts, there's actually only about 100 followers left. A lot of people didn't last. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey seven days uh, before his crucifixion, people were waving palm branches calling him king because they wanted deliverance. They thought this is, this is the next David coming in to free us from this empire, to take over. And so when we read that and when we find ourselves in that place, what it does is it... it, it, it speaks to us, where are we like Peter? Where am I like the disciples? Like, where, where do I have certain expectations that I place on God, that I place on Jesus? What Messiah am I looking for? Right? Because they could only see what they saw right in front of them. And Jesus came to do so much more. Jesus came to exceed their expectations. But in our life, we have to ask ourselves the hard question of, what Messiah are we actually looking for? And I think the Messiah that a lot of us look for in terms of false messiahs are teddy bears. Right? We look for something to cry on when we're sad. Or we look for a, uh, a genie messiah. I think this is more prevalent than any other one, which is I want a messiah that when I ask for something, I get it. When I pray, my prayers are answered, and I get those prayers. I think some of us are looking for a punching bag Messiah, something to get angry at, something to punch when we're mad at the world, when we don't get our way, when tragedy strikes, something to be mad at. Or some of us are looking for a warlord Messiah, the guy who comes and who takes care of all the people that aren't like us, all the people that we perceive our enemies to be. And so we have to ask ourselves this question of where are we wrong? Right? When we think about Jesus and when we think about what we expect out of God, just like the disciples expected certain things out of Jesus, where, we, where do we find ourselves at in this story? Where do we find ourselves in this place? Because the disciples, they didn't understand just how powerful the cross was. And they went on this journey and I love what the Apostle Paul reflects about the death of Jesus in 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That a Messiah would come, that God in the flesh comes just to die, is foolishness. But actually in that foolishness, the power of God is found. Um, the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, Jean-Marie Lustier, he told this story. Um, he said a number of years ago, there was a few French boys standing outside of a church. And they saw all these people going into the church and going into these little boxes, and then they would come out. And so they asked someone, they said, what are you guys doing in there? And they said, it's confessional. And so these three boys, they schemed up this plan, and they said, you know what? We're going to make up these crazy stories and go in and confess them. So these three boys, they go in and they tell these stories. Uh, one is more extreme than the other. And the priests aren't stupid. They understand what's going on. And so one of the priests catches what's happening here. And he says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out in the church. I want you to go up to Jesus on the cross. And I want you to say to Jesus on the cross, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. A priest said it, so I'm allowed to say it, right? <laughs> so the boy, he goes, okay, he's tough. So he goes out there, he looks up at Jesus on the cross and says, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. And he says it a second time. But that boy couldn't say it a third time. And the archbishop said, how do I know that story happened? How do I know that story is true? Because that boy was me. And I think we find ourselves in this mysterious place where the cross has this mysterious power over us and we can't always just describe it. We don't always know what it is, but it holds this power. It holds this power to change us. Like C.S. Lewis says, he says, there's a lot of theories about how and why, but all we really know is that it works. It works. That the cross, that what Jesus did on the cross through self-sacrificial love that this call to us to remember his death and resurrection through communion is that we continually die to ourselves so that Jesus can live through us. And so week one of this series, we're not going to be able to really answer the question, why did Jesus die? What did that accomplish? How did it accomplish that? But we're really just going to embrace the tension of the question of why. To find ourselves in that place where the disciples were at, confused, maybe a little frustrated, and maybe we find ourselves there today. But what we say today in this moment is that in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the tension, what do we know more than anything else is that it works. Uh, that it's just how it is and it's transformed us. And I think at the start of this series, we really need to just step into that place to say, God, I don't want you to just be a teddy bear or a genie or a warlord. I just need you in this moment to ransom me. That I know that there's an evil within me that needs to be dealt with. An evil that's even bigger than the Roman Empire. Uh, because it's still prevalent today. And it's prevalent in us. And that somehow through Jesus' death, God's kingdom comes. That through Jesus' death, a revolution has begun that we read in Amos, that picture of that future restoration that's begun 
right? It's not there yet, but it's at the beginning still. And God changes the world by changing us. He changes the world by changing you. And that's done through the blood of Jesus that has power over sin, power over death, power over that evil that is inside of us. And so as we close out today, what I want us to do as we take communion together is let this be us submitting ourselves to the cross to say, Jesus, I have all these ideas of these things that I want you to do for me. I'm just like the disciples. I'm just like the people who waved palm branches when I thought you were going to do all these great things for me, and when you didn't, I turned my back on you. I, I know there's those areas in my life, and I'm just going to give those things to you. And then I'm going to say, Jesus, I, I, I need you in this moment because something has a hold of my heart that I need you to take care of. And I know your blood has the power to take care of that. And so even though there's questions, even though there may be doubts and fears, what we know is that there's power to the cross. And there's power to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So Mosaic, would you pray with me? Jesus. We come to you today with questions that we may never get answered. And we say to you today, that's okay. Jesus, we thank you that you died as a ransom for many. That somehow your blood has set us free that we are slaves to this evil in our heart. We are slaves to all those ways that we expect you to operate in the world or that we expect you to operate in our lives. And so Jesus, today we come to you and we say, they're yours. We're not gonna set our expectations on you. We're simply gonna ask for that freedom to be set free from that power that seems to control us at times. So that just as you died and you were buried and you were resurrected, we die to ourselves, we die to our ambitions, we die to all those areas of fear. And Jesus, we say, will you resurrect us today? Will you set us free? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as we leave here today, let's find ourselves in that place of saying, you know what? Just as the disciples 2,000 years ago, they misunderstood some things, but Jesus blew away their expectations. He did so much more for them than they could have ever imagined, right? And we find ourselves here today in that place of saying, God, I don't fully understand everything. And I may not always understand everything, but I know you're leading me on this journey. And that journey is called grace. That you're gonna mess up. You're gonna screw up at times. But there's always grace. There's always welcoming at the table for us to be set free. 
And so we walk out of here today with our head held high and a smile on our face because Jesus, through his blood, has set us free. And I know we didn't get into too much of the why today, and I wanted today to be that setup, that setup that says, God, I don't understand everything, but I want to understand a little. And we posture ourselves in that place. And so next week, we're going to dive in a little bit more into the why and look at all this beautiful uh, illusions from the Old Testament into the new. But as we leave here today, we just know there's power to the cross and it has the power to set me free and you free. And the kingdom of God starts in us and then it spreads. So let's go. Let's see God's kingdom come in Lincoln as it is in heaven through us this week. Love you, Mosaic. Have a great week.